We've had a couple discussions about addiction on this show. One of the first episodes was with Sterling, after going through his personal addiction and overdose, and then getting clean and finding a new, better life for himself. Then an episode with Andrew about the mechanics of rehab and relapse. Now we're approaching it from another angle with my guest today, to see how you can spot, love, and support the addict in your life without enabling their illness further. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Michaela Canterbury. Michaela and her family are made up of high-functioning business professionals and elite athletes. So when they discovered a heroin addiction in the family, it caught everyone off guard. Isn't this something that only affects people who are lacking opportunity in education? Turns out that's not at all the case, and they had to scramble to establish how their family team was going to deal with this issue. Spoiler alert, addiction doesn't care about your well-laid-out plans or good intentions. Things did, fortunately, work out in the end, but the experience as a whole gives Michaela a unique perspective that she can help others with. Today you'll hear the story of her sister and their family, From Discovery to Recovery. Hopefully, it can help shed light on the reality of addiction's reach and the ways that you can help. Remember, you can email dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or send a message on any of the social media pages to suggest or request future topics or guests. For now, let's establish boundaries. Welcome to the show, Michaela Canterbury. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm so glad I could be here. Yes, thank you so much for being on the show. Why don't you introduce yourself for the audience? So my name is Michaela Canterbury. I am from Alaska. My day job is I'm a lawyer. I'm also a mom. (laughs) And I'm a spouse. I've been married 25 years, just celebrated 25 years of marriage. But um, I just recently published a book. Uh, I purposely, uh, intentionally released it in September, which was uh, Recovery Month. And the title is Sister Siren, a nonfiction about addiction and a field guide on how to love an addict. And so it's basically it's written memoir style, but it's about the three years that my sister was in active addiction and how our family navigated that that journey and how we stepped in uh, with love to support her through active addiction. She uh, story has a happy ending. She uh, she found recovery, uh, and um, and this March we'll be celebrating three years, four years. Pardon me, four years that she's been in recovery from a heroin and meth addiction. It took her down to the depths of being homeless on the streets of Alaska and. Can be pretty cold in Alaska, especially in the winter. Like right now, it's minus eight below. <laughs> so uh, when you're homeless and suffering from addiction on the streets of Alaska, it's a pretty cold and lonely place to be. So that's what this book talks about: is uh, that journey and how we were we're all high functioning professionals. Uh, I'm a trial lawyer. My dad's a trial lawyer. My mom's a PhD. My husband's a trial lawyer. My kids are elite athletes. My sister was an elite athlete. She was a college athlete and uh, she got a master's in counseling. And so her addiction and the the increase of it, if you will, um, is is um, it was happening right underneath our noses. We didn't even know. And so the, that's what that's what my this story <laughs> talks about. It also includes some resources on tips and tools and stuff that helped me because loving an addict is really hard. <laughs> and so knowing how to love an addict when they're suffering from addiction, um, I couldn't find any tools. So I basically wrote the book I felt I needed at the time. And um, I just want to get it out to everybody because I, I bet you there's um, an addict in your life that you love. <laughs> and so to the extent that you or your listeners have people in their lives that are suffering from addiction, any kind of addiction, uh, I have the tips and tools that work for me and the stories. And so 
Yeah. That's why I'm here today. And that's awesome. Like, I love, you know, that this had a happy ending, especially, you know, for you and your sister, where you're like, we are celebrating recovery because it seems like obviously not everybody gets that kind of story in their life where like addiction can be very hard and a lot of people, you know, don't make it out. And so having these resources and having people like you to speak on this is incredibly critical. And I feel like that is something that it's a skill that most of us don't have is like, how do you spot an addict in your life? Like, how do you know? Because like you said, it was happening under your nose. Was there a sign or like, did it just get so bad? You guys finally were like, oh, wow, that's been going on. Well, that's just it, Colton, is that when it's, when you've known the person your whole life and their whole life, uh, this is just happening. So I can, I can now look in retrospect and go, aha, that's what that was at the time. There was always an appropriate response as to why her complexion was um, different. Uh, she she said she had a dermatological condition and she was taking medication for it. Yes, yeah, she was taking medication for it. I just didn't know what medication it was. <laughs> you know, and the the picking of her. Um, I now know that she would when she would draw on her eyebrows and she was actually picking at her, at her eyebrows. I didn't. And that's a condition that can happen. It starts with a T it's defined in the book. It's, it's a really long word, but it's an obsessive com, um, condition of picking hairs and things, you know, picking your hair and, and such, but also these things that just start to happen and they start building upon each other. Like she began to, she, she wouldn't show up to things saying that she was sick. And so I would go and make chicken noodle soup and, pumpkin cookies and bring them to her house. And yeah, she was sick. She was dope sick, but she wouldn't let me into the house ever. So I would just leave the the soup and the cookies there. And, and I get a text back from her. Oh, that was great, you know, or she couldn't. Uh, so she was always sick um, in the beginning and um, her complexion changed and her, uh, physical appearance change. I mean, she was, like I said, she was an elite athlete and she played college um, soccer. She was even going to try out for that Seattle women's team. I'm, I'm not an athlete, but I think it's like the Sounders or something like that. But she chose the education route and went and got her master's. Again, she just, her physical appearance, she was like fashionista too. She was she's like, <laughs> she got going on. And um just long sleeves, multiple layers, um, gaining lots of weight. Um, the long sleeves I now know, so I wouldn't be seeing her arms. Um, and the, um, uh, yeah, her just, she just let her appearance kind of go, always being disheveled, always wearing hoods, covering up her, her um, uh, the, the hairline and such like that. And her makeup was like sometimes splotchy on. And then there were, then other crises started to surface, uh, losing jobs, uh, getting into car crashes. <laughs> and these things would surface and, you know, our family, we're primarily a family of lawyers. <laughs> so, and I'm a personal injury lawyer at that. Oh, you're in a car crash and it's not your fault. I, I can do that. You know, that's my job, you know? So I, you know, I would... <laughs> represent her and resolve the claim in her favor and oh my goodness Colton did I suffer from some guilt for that you know thinking how did I contribute to this not knowing the whole time I mean my eyes are welling up as I remember that but um I just I beat myself up big time thinking that I was contributing and enabling to that not even knowing and like I like bouncing my head of course I should have known I'm a personal injury lawyer I see this all the time when I see when I would see clients that would get addicted to hydrocodone and oxycodone and those kinds of things um oh man was I hard on myself for a while but those are some of the things that you can uh I now know in hindsight um that uh, uh you know and then she began to isolate herself and then it pretty much landed on our lap because there was always a reason for the behavior. I mean, she was diagnosed with ADHD um, when she was a, a young, um, a preteen. And uh, 
she began to present with panic attacks. And so I thought that this was just a normal presentation of her being, um, not being able to tease out and recognize, you know, and like uh, the the addiction component. And so anyway, <laughs> I, I that's kind of a sideways way of answering your question. Um, but she eventually got, you know, kicked out of her apartment, lost her job, um, became homeless on the streets. And um, before she became homeless on the streets and before she got kicked out of her apartment, some of her soul sisters came to my mom and um, and said, my dad was traveling and said, hey, um, she wasn't showing up. We hadn't seen her in, in years. You know, they, they went to school in um, um, Washington State came up to Alaska. We hadn't seen her in years. And um, we, she came late to the campfire and the camping trip that we planned and just basically admitted that she does, she does heroin. <laughs> and her husband gives it to her. And so this was just landed in my mom's lap. And then um, we just kind of went from there. Uh, it was so, it was, it was hard to spot because it was, you know, it was just evolving up right underneath our noses, you know, but I can look back in hindsight and say, oh, gee, okay, yeah, she was sick. Oh, gee, you know, this is why her appearance changed it. You know, this, oh, okay, this is why she couldn't keep a job down. Oh, this can, the, uh, now I understand, always the crisis, you know, always, an inability to handle daily things, routine, when she was so high functioning before, uh, uh, I'm just, you know, captain of the soccer team, you know, A's and B's, all this kind of, you know, that coaches didn't know. None of us knew. Community didn't know. We were raised in this small community. Um, and it wasn't until her friends, you know, kind of landed in our lap. We're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, and that is like, I mean, there's a lot in there where it's like, you know, when people are close to you, you're kind of willing to write off some of this behavior like i have friends who have like always oh, scheduled to hang out and they oh i got something that pops up it would never come to my mind like oh maybe there's something else going on i'm like oh that's my friend and sometimes they're a little flaky exactly and then exactly. like having the the perception underlying i think there is like an image that we associate when we're like, oh, this is a heroin addict. They've always been kind of like they've never had those opportunities. They never went to school. They're uneducated and, you know, they didn't have any success in their life. And that's why they're a heroin addict. Whereas it's like, that's clearly not true. And it can just happen to anyone that falls into that cycle. All of those things are true. And then, you know, you just kind of you have your blinders on and you're like, well, I'll take care of you. It's OK. Well, exactly. And that's like kind of how it happened with, that's my feeling is my, my, my sister, she had a, uh, she sustained a significant sporting injury. She was a speed skater and um, was doing, uh, um, was that the Arctic winter games, they call it the Arctic winter games. And it was in Canada. Uh, one of the horses in Canada, I can't remember if it was white horse or dead horse, but one of those horses, <laughs> she was doing the winter games in the in Canada. And she was going around really fast because she's a speed skater and went feet first into the boards, lost an edge, went feet first into the boards and broke her ankle. And again, this was before she was assessed with ADHD. And so in Canada, they triaged her, everything set her up. And, but here she is a preteen with hydrocodone, oxycodone, morphine drip. And then after that, assessed with ADHD and given medication for that. Uh, and so that's basically meth light, you know, those kind of <laughs> drugs, <laughs> you know, meth and heroin light. And uh, um, so her body, mind, and spirit learned at a very young age and became dependent upon medication and drugs to to tend to suffering you know it's it became in her system you know so i'm really really proud of her for breaking that cycle uh because it was present in her life i mean she didn't get clean until her late 30s 
Yeah, I mean, so, you gave you, you gave yeah. a young kid some medication that has extreme addiction tendencies, and you're like, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Like, it's right. just extreme painkillers and, and, like you said, right. amphetamines. Don't worry about it. And this is, like, late 80s, early 90s that this is happening in her life. And we didn't, you know, my parents were just doing what the doctor said. And, you know, and, and I should, I should give a little bit of background. There's my sister and I, I'm the older sister. And so she's 13 years younger than I am. So there's like a decade and a half, like a generation and a half um, between us. So I was like a built-in babysitter, really cool subparent type thing. So we have a unique sibling relationship where there was also like my parents had two only children, you know, <laughs> me and my my sister. And so um, this was all happening. We were all just doing what the medical community told us to do. Um, and yeah, what parents do, they take care of their kids and they, you know, okay, the doctor says medication, you know. Well, yeah, and that would be hard. I mean, like you said, you're 13 years older. If she was like, you know, even 10, you're in your 20s. And so you're like, oh, my poor sister got really injured. That's really hard. I hope she's doing okay. Like you wouldn't, I don't think your brain just goes straight to like, oh, they're giving her addictive medication. You're just like, oh, well, she's in pain. She needs pain meds. I want her to feel better. Right, right. So I was in college while this was going on. So I wasn't even, you know, like I said, my parents were dealing with this and they just want to get her back to Alaska from Canada, you know, get her in there. And so they were basically raising her in her teenage years while I am <laughs> going to going to uh, undergrad and going to law school and, you know, meeting the man I'm going to marry and having kids. I mean, she was like, she was my maid of honor and she's the godmother to my son. And so, but all these injuries and things are happening. And so, yeah. yeah. And they're giving her meds and okay, this is, this is what they say. Yeah. So after this is all dropped in your mom's lap, like you said, they're just kind of like, okay, here's the situation. How did you like approach this situation with her and did you kind of stumble into it? Because I imagine most of us would where we're just like, okay, go straight to the issue. Like, is that the wrong thing to do? You are correct. <laughs> so, um, and my mother, like I said, my mother's a PhD and um and and in um in, in counseling and, and human services. And she's head of her department at UAA of, of, of the human services department, which teaches people to be social workers and, and, and such. Anywho, my dad was fishing because <laughs> he, he liked the outdoors. We all do up here. You probably do there in Oregon too. But anyway, um, my mom calls and says that this happened. She's, um, Hysterical is the only word I can come up with is my mother is hysterical. And I got to give a little bit more background here. Right now, my mother is in the advanced stages of Alzheimer's. And at the time, so this is like 2017-ish, uh, I, I look back on that time and I'm thinking, was my mom presenting with her own brain disease presentation at the time. Um, because, I mean, she's an educated woman. Okay? <laughs> and um, her, yeah, so her response was to go and try to save my sister all by her own self. And she was scared to death to tell my dad. And I was like, this is weird. You know, this is kind of a, we've always been a team. Our family's always been a team. What's going on? Um, so uh, she initially, my mom initially went to my sister directly. She told me and I, I, you know, when you're, when the stuff lands in your lap, Colton, your initial, my, I should say my initial response and probably everybody's initial response is how does it affect me? You know, so how did it affect me as her sister? But how does it affect me as um, a spouse to my husband and a mother to my children who were teenagers at the time? 
and um, they love their auntie. <laughs> so I immediately went to, holy crap, my kids were over at her apartment. Holy crap. Are they selling to my kids' friends? Holy crap. What does, you know, so that was how it initially settled on me. And I didn't want to give off any air to my daughter who was up in her bedroom. My husband and son were traveling at the time. And um, my mom was, like I said, hysterical. And she's coming at it from a mom perspective, you know. So I agreed to tell, I, 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 I agreed to support my mom in telling my dad. And my mom was saying things like, he's going to blame me. Just stuff that didn't make sense to me. Like, this stuff just happens. You're a counselor. You know this. But she wasn't in that brain set. And I don't know if this be was because it was traumatic or if it was part of her own progressive brain disease that was undiagnosed at the time. But then, yeah, we, uh, we had a talk with my husband. We came to an understanding of how we were going to tell our children and what kind of our, our, our understanding of how we were going to move forward with our children and our family. And um, I talked with my dad and initially it was the blame game. My parents were blaming each other um, for enabling, for not being present for all this kind of stuff. And I'm just like, okay, <laughs> well, there's no way <laughs> we're going to get this train moving with, you know, how's divided pointing fingers at each other. So initially Colton, it was really rough. Um, my, you know, my, my dad's like, well, I know I raised her well, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> he's like, you know, she's an elite athlete. I don't understand how this happens. Don't, 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 you know, uh, so, and then my mom's like, yeah, yeah, we're never my dad's like, and you always give her money whenever she asks for it. So that was going on for a while when we all have to work out how, how we can step in with love. We got to work out all this other stuff, you know? So that was rough. <laughs> that was a rough. So, and, and meanwhile, her, she's using, you know, it's getting worse. It's not getting better. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, while you guys are figuring stuff out, like things haven't just paused. She's not like, oh, let me hold my addiction until you figure it out. Right. Until you guys can help me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> until you can step in. <laughs> but yeah. also, like, I think this this helps probably people to hear because a lot of us would probably be like, well, I'm going to stumble around the situation. I'm not going to know what to do. And you're like, well, my mother was literally training people in how to do this and didn't know what to do. So it's like when you're personally involved, it's much different. You are not like a consummate professional anymore. You are a mother. <laughs> you're like, you're going to have a mother response. Exactly. And those kinds of, I mean, even on, we, 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 eventually we were all able to come together and we, we did an intervention with my sister. And the, the, the day before the intervention, we discovered, like, we, our family had set a rule, okay, no cash, you cannot ever give her cash, you know, you can't give her, you can't give her gift cards, because she'll just trade it for drugs, you know, so, um, but the, 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 the day before, and we're plotting where we're gonna, you know, do the intervention, and how we're gonna show up, and yada, yada, it comes out that my mom gave her, like, 250 bucks. And I'm like, my dad was livid at the situation. And that's when it became apparent. I think there's something else going on with my mom because she sat at the table and she was like, oh, I did something bad. I did something bad. But she said she needed her medication. And I'm just like, my mom is not clicking right, not thinking right. And it just became this understanding with our team. <laughs> I call it, I, in the book, I call us Kelly Berries, <laughs> the Kelly Berry team. Um, uh, that um, he, my, my sister got to her, but my mom's, my mom, that's my mom's weakness. And there doesn't do any good to be getting angry at each other over this. 
you know, just knowing what our limits are and protecting each other where our weaknesses are. And then those that have the strength can step forward where they, where they have their strength and how they can step forward. And so that was kind of how things unfolded after, after that, as we recognize, okay, we got to protect mom. (laughs) And it's not that, it's not that mom doesn't love you, Kaylin. (laughs) She loves you too much, actually, you know? So then there started to be this evolution of, of our own team sport against addictions, possession of my sister. Yeah. And how did that initial intervention go? Like, was it well received? Well, I characterize it as successful because we planted the seeds of recovery and she, there was no denial that she had issues of addiction so we all spoke our truth and she heard us now my father would tell you didn't work failure too spent too much money okay i mean it was about ten thousand dollars we flew an interventionist up here and we um uh we all rallied and we did our thing um and my parents were prepared to um, fly her to um, fly because all the rehab places in Alaska with long waiting lists and it's kind of like this chess game of can you get you know uh, uh, you know the timing all that crap and you can never get the timing right with addiction right <laughs> it's not like oh it's a line woohoo oh, mana uh, so we had a we got an airline ticket and we got a bed down in the low forty eight and, and my parents were going to pay for this and they're. Um, fortunate that, that we could do that, right? That that we have those resources to do that. But when we showed up, <laughs> like, okay, we got to do the intervention here, you know, and it was at this trap house, actually, this, this, um, this trap house, uh, trap, trap out apartment. And um, we show up and um, under the guise of moving her <laughs> from one apartment to another and fixing the flat tire that she had called me about, right? <laughs> And um, she's like, hey, sis. And I'm like, oh, yeah, hey, I brought Chris. And he's going to, Chris is my husband, fix your flat tire. And, and she's like, oh, no, I took care of it. Everything's fine. And then she's like, hey, why are mom and dad here? And I'm like, oh, um, we're going to help you move. <laughs> we're going to help you with the boxes. She's like, I don't need any help. And then she's like, who's that guy? Right? Yeah. <laughs> and that guy stepped forward and says, hi, I'm John. An interventionist, I'm here to help. She's like, oh no, we're not doing this. And she bolted, right? She bolted into the apartment. So we all go into the apartment and we're standing in the doorway, which has been like kicked and it's got all these things, just, you know, more evidence because her relationship with her husband was deteriorating and was becoming um, violent, quite frankly. Um, uh, they were assaulting each other and, uh, um, it was just, it was not good. So we, he moved upstairs with his brother <laughs> and, uh, and they had addiction issues as well. And so she was downstairs with her dog. <laughs> so we're all in the doorway. So she can't get out. Right. And she's just pinging around. She's like, we're not doing this right now. I know exactly who you are. Do you realize that 95% of interventions fail? And she's like spouting off statistics. <laughs> and she knows this stuff because she worked as, as a counselor, okay? And Colton, I was so, my fear was that she was going to deny that she had a problem and checkmate me out with the science that she knew that I didn't know. She never did that. That's why I considered that a success. She was truthful that she has an addiction and she just didn't want our help. She was going to do it her way. That's why I consider it a a success. But in that moment where she's, um, she's trying to bolt and my husband chases her down and brings her back. And that's where he shined. I mean, I couldn't love that man more in that moment. Um, We all, have our times when we're going to shine, you know, and step in. And he did big time. And he brought her back and said that, um, told her that we're all here because we have, because we love her and we have some things to say. And she agreed to listen. 
And she did. Um, and it took, you know, half the day and a lot of tears. And um, she basically said, thanks. I know you love me, but uh, I'm going to do things my way. And then we kind of set out our limits as to, well, we can't support you. We can't support your addiction. So we're not going to do that. We're not going to be giving you money. I'm not going to be bailing you out of jail. I'm not going to be showing up at court for you. I'm not going to. So we started, you know, doing these kinds of, um, they call them boundaries. <laughs> um, um, but just really getting real with what our limits are and why. And uh, and it's not because we don't love her. It's, you know, this is, this, we can't support addiction that way. Yeah. And that's, I I would bet a very hard balance, right? Because you're like, I don't want you, like, I don't want to see you suffering. I want to help you. I want to support you, even though I know you have an addiction. I just have to be extremely careful about how I do it. Because like you said, any small thing where you're like, oh, well, if I don't give them cash, they can't buy drugs. So I'll give them grocery store gift cards. And you're like, yeah, they can trade the gift cards. Like, that's not a problem. That's, that's you know, economy. They can work that out. So you're like, how do you support this person? Like, is it just like, I will make you meals because I don't think you can trade your meals. <laughs> right, right. And that's um, that's what each individual needs to work out for their own selves. The first thing that I learned is that you got to care for your own self before you can care for another that's difficult to love under difficult circumstances. So that's the first thing is care for yourself. And so we can, I can step into caring for her, how I can care for her, where, where, where I, where my skill set is, you know, or where my, my, mine are, but yes, I did cook her meals. I continued to cook her meals and bring her meals. I would um, get her a meal. Uh, I would, uh, I I started carrying Narcan in my car. I would bring her um, first aid kits, phone chargers, water, um, <laughs> um, uh, things that I, that I could give that weren't like taking away from me. Now, again, it took a while for me to get there because I'm an overgiver fixer kind of person. <laughs> and I also learned wait until you're asked and then make your decision, an informed decision. I mean, also, like I said before, this is a team sport and I'm married and I've got two teenagers right at the time. And so if she's calling for cash, which you're not supposed to give, don't give cash. Okay. <laughs> I could legitimately say, hey, we can't do that. It's outside our budget. You know, oh, you can just do it. This, this. No, no, I'm married. <laughs> we we talk about our how we spend, things like that. Um, our family actually navigated and created a, um, like a pseudo conservatorship that when she eventually did call us for help, and she did eventually call us for help, we... I created a document <laughs> that said, basically, in essence, uh, you know, is here why agreed and understood that we love each other. And, you know, you are suffering from addiction and we want to, you, you need help and you want our support and we want to do this. But this can only happen under these circumstances. Okay. Uh, now that kind of feels like conditional love. Um but it's not, <laughs> but it wasn't, it's being true with how we're going to support, you know, because we do love you. Um, anyway. Um, and then if there's, if there's things that are, I don't even want to say broken, um, but uh, constant regrouping is what I'm going to say. Constant regrouping um, either weekly uh, or <laughs> weekly, uh, as to how much support is being given. I mean, like there was a point, Colton, where I was, I mean, I wanted her recovery more than she did. Okay. So I was driving through snowstorms an hour away to a trap house um, to get her to a doctor's appointment. 
that she needed to attend to, so my 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 parents would would financially support her so she could get a clean UA. So it it was you know and I I can, anyone can be critical of that situation. Oh, you were enabling, you know. I am not even going to disagree with that. We were navigating how we could under the circumstances and I had to reassess, oh, I want this more than her. I need to step back. I need to report to my father the truth of what's happening here. This is, she wouldn't make this without me. I want it more than her. Uh, and so there were some fits and starts of that. You know, I, I'd say there are about two or three times of that where those were some rock bottom moments between my sister and I. And I had to learn from, I had to learn to give her space. Um, they call it detach with love. And I always thought that was like, you know, something mean. <laughs> you cut your arm and they're detaching it, you know, like an amputation or something. And I reframed it to loving from afar. Always told her I loved her. Then I began to show up in ways that I could that wouldn't hurt me so much. Uh, and that is unique to everybody. So everybody got to get real with what their limits are to where you're not losing yourself in this. So um, I found my ways of doing that. And my dad had his, my husband had his, et cetera. Yeah. You know, as much as you want to care for this person, you know, there is that point where you're like, I care more than you. And it's starting to affect like me personally. And I don't, you know, everyone says like, you know, I'll watch out. They'll drag you down with them. But like to an extent, if you don't protect yourself in the situation, you kind of do get drugged down, like not to be, not to be harsh, right. but like you are worsening your life because right, you right. Know, you're doing things. You're not taking care of yourself. Yeah. You're not taking care of your mental health and your spiritual health and your physical health. That's what I mean by that. Prioritize that so you can step in the way that you can and noodle down as to you. This is what I can do. And I can't I can't give you $150, but I I can I can give you chicken and dumplings. Yeah. You know, I, I can give you a phone charger. I love you. It is unconditional love with boundaries where you're like, mm -hmm. like, no matter what, I love you. And I care about you, but like, because of these things and the way they're going to affect my life, I can't do them. It's not right. that I don't love you. This is not a condition of my love. It is just like, I am trying to take care of myself and the, like the literal things I need to get by and have a healthy life. Right. Right. And it was, you know, it was, it was hard there for a while because you can lose yourself in that darkness. And like I said, I'm the overgiver and I want to fix everything. But it was very easy to get lost in that. And I had to get back to um, I, I have what's what I call M MWBT morning well-being time. <laughs> and I would and I still do to this day as I carve out that time and and get to the nubbins of whatever is distracting me for whatever reason. OK, at that time. It was fear and it was resentment. Today it's procrastination, but at that time it was fear and resentment. And I would literally, Colton, make time and meet with fear and ask her why she's there. I would light a candle and I'd have to limit this because she can take, she took up a lot of time, but I'd have to limit this. So I set appointments with fear, with my fear and I'd set the timer and I would write out everything I'm afraid of. I just needed to get to the noodle of it and let it all out. I'm going to get the call that she's dead. I'm going to have to identify the body. I'm going to have to tell my parents. 
I'm going to have to stand in a church full of the community where we were raised and tell this community that my sister died of a heroin overdose. That's that's that because I knew that was all going to be on me. And look, I'm getting all watery eyed talking about it. But I she showed up fear. Mrs. Fear showed up and laid that all out. And I stepped into it. And from that, that gave me the power to actually walk into that trap house and tell her that she can't tell me who to love, that I'm here because I love her. And I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to take you to the hospital right now if you want me to. But if I hadn't sat down with fear and if I hadn't sat down with resentment and noodled what was really going on there, I don't think I would have had the courage or the strength or be dumb enough <laughs> to step into those moments where I feel I was called. Yeah, I mean, that certainly takes a lot of resolve to do that. And, you know, to an extent, like you said, you know, just being a little dumb in a situation where you're like, eh, there might be there might be some dangers here. There might be some, you know, I should have some extra fear about this, but like I got to handle my situation. <laughs> And I give little guides in my book, you know, <laughs> if you're dumb enough to go to a trap house, you know, make sure it's well lit. Tell your friend, you know, tell a friend or have a buddy, you know, um, take pictures, have your video on, uh, have a plan, you know, I mean, but I learned this. Okay. I don't recommend going to trap houses, but now I know. Uh, you know, now, now I know. It kind of built the survival guide after the fact. Right. Well, it's a field guide. It is. A, that's the title of the book, a field guide, Sister Siren, a nonfiction about addiction and a field guide on how to love an addict. So if you're going to, you know, go to a trapped out place, look, look who's around, <laughs> make sure it's well lit, you know? And then when I walked out and she didn't receive, receive my help, you know, and I drove through and I just like, I took one of those needles that I saw on the ground, I had written out a note. I was here because of blah, blah, blah. You're not going to get our support. Took the needle and put it into the, <laughs> put it into the door jam. And I had gloves on. So also, <laughs> if you're going to handle needles, pick and use wear gloves. That's another little tip. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I was feeling feisty in the moment, but don't handle bare needles. I'll be, I'll be, to be honest, it was because it was winter time, but you know, down in your area where it's warmer, we're close. Yeah, for sure. Don't handle the needles. So what kind of got to the breaking point where it's like, you know, obviously, as you said, you know, she's been going on four years clean now. Like what was the breaking point that finally did get her help? Yeah. Um, so my sister and I have been actually, we've been delivering, um, we've been doing some I don't know, uh, presentations together. And um, I always feel a little awkward talking about how she found recovery, but this is what she says. Uh, she says that there were a compilation of events and memories that occurred around the same time. So it was around the holidays uh, was her first attempt, but she kept relapsing. She always had a memory and knowledge that life didn't have to be this way. Life could be good. You could pay your bills. You could have a house. You could, you know, work in a profession and serve other people. You could feel good in your body. Uh, so, so there were, she had knowledge and memory of this. That's one thing that she mentions a lot. There were some physical traumas too. Um, she was being assaulted by men uh, and um, she was she basically, and she had some overdoses um, and I didn't know about this. So when she tells us, I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> you know? So my fear was right. <laughs> but, um, and, and, and these, so, the people that were in the trapped out places would assault her and steal from her and Narcan her from the, from the, from the, uh, so it was a series of those. And so, you know, some people call that, um, um, 
you know, getting to a rock bottom of sorts, we're getting to rock bottom, not just of sorts. I always, um, I never really liked that word. (laughs) And not that they're wrong. I just don't like the word. Um, Because when I was, when I was trying to have her do recovery my way, which I don't recommend doing. (laughs) That's another thing. Don't tell an addict what to do. I mean, nobody likes to be told what to do, right? Yeah, (laughs) especially an addict or people who love addicts. I mean, that was just, just don't tell them what to do and don't tell people how to love other people. They got to find out how they're going to love themselves and they got to find out how they're going to love each other their own way. So don't be telling people how to do that. Um, But yeah, it was a constellation of, of traumas and, and getting to her rock bottom. When people would say, I'd call to get her help or get her into rehab. Um, well, has she reached rock bottom? And I'm like, what do you mean? Is she dead yet? No, she's on the streets and homeless and getting assaulted every night. How's that? You know, and my response was kind of snarky to them. And I, I, there's, I, I send them flowers now on her recovery day because I wasn't very nice. And so that's my apology. I send it anonymously <laughs> on her recovery anniversary <laughs> because everybody's rock bottom is their deal, you know? And I just couldn't believe it had gotten that bad, but her rock bottom was that low. Yeah. And I think everybody like, you know, rock bottom really is like super subjective because to me, rock bottom is like, if it's truly the worst it could be, well, then they're dead. Right. Because that's that's the lowest you can go. But like I've had a couple people, you know, on the show in different episodes that have talked about different kinds of addictions to different substances. And they've all had different rock bottoms where they're like. You know, oh, I overdosed and that was the moment where I knew I needed to change because I was dead. And like I did come back because someone knew to call 911 and others were like, oh, it's because she put the car through the front of the house or I don't want to commit this crime. Like everyone has a different, you know, point where like things change for them. Exactly. They got to find it their own way. I can't tell them what that is, you know, or we can't. Yeah. Well, yeah, because you could explain, like you said, she was already aware of statistics. Like you could explain what could happen, but that's not going to be the same kind of experience, unfortunately, as like actually living that that moment. Like that is going to be different for everyone. And some of it's going to be like that will be their breaking point or their tipping point or whatever you want to refer to it as like their rock bottom like everyone has a different one. So unfortunately it's really hard to like quantify it. You're 110% correct. So for her, it just ended up being her memory that life could be better. She did overdose more than once and that she wants to live uh, and that she doesn't want to live this way. Yeah. I, I unfortunately, um, sharing some real life information here. Um, I just had a buddy in this last week uh, who experienced an overdose death in his family. And that is, you know, for anyone listening, if you are struggling with your addiction or someone else's, like, unfortunately, these things happen. And I hope, you know, that everyone can kind of work around it before it gets there. But like it's all the more reason to seek help if you have a problem or to, you know, try and try and help where you can, you know, while you can, um, unfortunately. But uh, moving through that, like well, how... also Godspeed to your friend. I mean, that's and and again, that's when we get back to self-care and taking care of your own self. Um, I mean, I was going to counseling. I was, you know, I was going on whatever would soothe my soul for the the pain and the grief and the resentment and all those, what I call RFFs, red flag feelings, is we've got to meet them head on. Because if we don't, they just get stuffed and it doesn't make for a palatable existence. You know, then you'll start, then there's the isolation and there's all this stuff. I'm not saying it's easy. 
And I'm not saying that it's going to be all rainbows and unicorns, you know, within two weeks or, you know, 60 days or whatever, but moving through this and stepping in the way you step in, um, because these RFFs are telling us something. Um, and, uh, you know, whatever, whatever feelings are there and there, I know there's a lot of them. So Godspeed to your friend. And, um, it's, it's okay to have counseling. It's okay to get support. It's okay. I also went to, um, the, some of the 12 step programs. Sometimes I still go today when I, when things are getting, you know, um, scary for me and I need support. It's okay to, to step in and ask for that. We can't do this ourselves. This is overcoming addiction and the collateral damage that comes from it is a team friggin' sport. It's a community issue. Yeah. No two ways about it. Like this is a very hard road to travel for everyone involved. And it's not like it gets easier one way or another. If they seek recovery, recovery in itself is very difficult and that is hard for everyone involved. It may be like very gratifying at the end, obviously everyone can enjoy that. But like at the same time, like it's also a hard road if they don't seek recovery and they end up in, you know, a situation where they do overdose and they don't recover. Like that is hard as well. So it's not like there's an easy way out in either direction. So, but you know, in wondering about recovery, like it does take everyone different amounts of time. But how did your sister, you know, handle that? Like, how long did it kind of take her to go through her process? Yeah. Um, so she found her way to rehab, and she did what they call is intensive outpatient, uh, and that happened up here in Alaska, and she when it the first time <laughs> she was just three days shy of graduating and I remember I got a call because <laughs> one of the things I also did a way I could step in is I could be her emergency contact and I could be her um she signed over uh, a release of information to me um and designated me her emergency contact and power of attorney um which was I'm glad that she did because the, the, the doctor could then communicate with me. So anyway, I got this call <laughs> um, from her person, her person in rehab. Um, I don't even, uh, her person, her counselor telling me that she failed her UI, UA. And, um, and, and my, my sister was saying things like, I don't think those UAs are right. You know? <laughs> Oh, uh, again, she's smarter than me in math and science. <laughs> and uh, she is going to pick up this other stuff and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I fill my head. As I'm talking to this woman, I'm like, well, how do you know? And she's like, well, you know, we, we UA them. And it came back positive. And she's like, so she's relapsed. And she's like, Michaela, relapse is part of recovery. It's how you learn, you know, it's how they learn. And I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't know that. I always thought relapse was bad, you know? Um, but the way that she described it, and that was a very sweet way that she did that for me. As I'm talking to her, <laughs> by the way, I am moving my daughter into the dorm room since the counselor calls. And then boop, boop, beep, another call's coming in. And it's my sister. I'm like, oh, hey. I'm like, hey, what's up? She's like, sis. I'm, I'm checking out at rehab. They they don't respect me. They don't do this. Yada yada. So uh, I'm gonna go do this on my own. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know. And I'm like, well, here's the deal. You know, for for our support, remember, blah blah blah. Anyway, all that to say that relapse is part of recovery. There's going to be stumbles. So there was, um, so the first time she went to rehab, she she uh, quit uh, three days before she graduated. Uh, she relapsed, and um, there were some more moving forwards and moving backs of wanting her recovery too much, loving from afar. 
and she got herself into a program. Uh, it's all outpatient program. Cause I said, I'm done. Right. She, she, I was too close and I was wanting it more than her. She called me and she's like, you're just, Oh, that was the time where I put the, <laughs> I put the needle on the door jam. She's like, you're just, <laughs> you're just being a little, because I'm not doing what you tell me to do. And I'm like, you are 110% correct. I am done. Hung up the phone. And in that moment, I didn't know if I would ever see her again, ever hear from her again. Fortunately, the next day, she reached out to me and called me. And then she got herself into her uh, an outpatient recovery program. And then she went back to the rehab place where she um, quit three days before graduation. She enrolled herself back into that program for her own self, but also to show them she could do it, you know, because she's still like that competitive, yeah. <laughs> still wanting to do it her way. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so there were, there were a couple bouts of rehab and finding a way that fit her. Um, and us not telling her how to do it. Yeah. And I mean, whatever gets you there, right? Like if it's strictly to prove the, uh, the counselors and whoever else wrong that you can get clean, like good, use that motivation, whatever it is that gets you there. Like, that's a good thing. Right. Um, right. She says that now she's like, I needed to tell them, you know, <laughs> Yeah. But see, when, when she was in that program, I mean, because she is a counselor um, and, and advanced degrees, um, she would report that things were done and she would say, that's not how you do it. <laughs> You're violating HIPAA. You, you're never, and then they would begin to, um, what well, she felt they were picking on her. Uh, another interpretation could be that they were. I don't want to say scared, but intimidated because she does know her shit, right? Yeah. I mean, I was afraid to argue with her. I'm a lawyer, you know? She cannot argue anybody, right? <laughs> but I mean, so I think that there was there was that element that was also in there. And so there was this mm, push me, pull you, if you will, between submitting to a program and a punitive aspect that didn't feel team sportish to her. Um, and so um, it was really, so that was, was, I'm glad she, I mean, she had to find her own way as everybody does, you know, um, as to, you know, and she also, she also started doing her own um, physical exercise. So she, she also got, um, She's outside of rehab and the treatment programs, she got her certifications and she increased her certifications in trauma-informed yoga. And she got another, um, uh, she's other uh, certifications that she added on to her counseling. And so in addition to, she's delivering counseling services now, but she also has a parallel profession as a life coach for women in recovery. And so she's able to offer these other feeling good in your body uh, and in your spirit. And she teaches meditation and she delivers counseling services and the trauma-informed yoga and just really a package, you know, that that fits these other elements than like a traditional rehab. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. That can be punitive. <clears throat> yeah. And, and to steal a vernacular from a, a podcaster that I admire, no tea, no shade, no pink lemonade. You've got to find the one that works for you. And if it takes you more than one swing at rehab or you have to find an alternate way to do it, that's totally fine. Because one of the other people that I've had on the show, it was his wife went to, I think, seven rehabs and never recovered. She never mm -hmm. recovered. She ended up dying an addict. And so it's like, you know, whatever you have to do, whatever program it is, whatever, however you need to approach it, like you can get through it and then you can, you know, move on like your sister and develop your own system and help people in your own way. Like whatever you have to do, that's what gets you there. Right. Right. And this, this, what she, so this, 
movement um, that, that she has going on. It's Joyful Girl Recovery. But she has accountability to all the people from all the people that she now serves. <laughs> so she can't screw up, man. <laughs> you know, if those are the, if those, if that's what you're setting, that's what you're setting uh, as, as to what, you know, what your accountability is going to be for your own recovery. Yeah. You got a bit of a spotlight position where you're like, right. I am right. a goldfish in a bowl and everyone can see what I do. Right. Right. Actually. And it's quite brilliant if you think about it, you know, <laughs> that'll keep you honest. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, is there anything else that you've seen in like popular media or you know TV, whatever it is, where you look at it and you're like, this is just like a broad misconception where people are saying something that I just don't think is true? Yeah, there's a lot of fear, stigma and shame around addiction. People are afraid to step in. Figuring that out, <laughs> I mean, you're not going to catch addiction. So uh, that that's just kind of one thing I wanted to put out there is um, really figuring out how you can step in. And, you know, heroin and meth addicts can be high functioning people and they aren't the people under the bridge, you know, um, <laughs> whatever. But that the people under the bridge are people too. And um, can, there can be step-ins there. That's one of the things that we are, the book and the, the movement with my sister and all has like spawned this where, where we're going to start having sister siren soldiers and um, delivering uh, what we can um, to trapped out places because Nobody ever said, when I grow up, I want to be an addict. Nobody ever said that. This stuff happens. And so how can we help? And that's really, in my opinion, is the reframe of this epidemic that we have going on in our nation. And I think that's an incredible goal. And I will, I think, leave the audience with that. But I'd love to give you some time to, you know, plug this book and the other things that you do and where people can find you. Thank you. So yeah, Sister Siren is on Amazon. Um, and it, as I said, I, I released it in September, which was recovery month, and it shot to number one hot new release. So exciting. Uh, it's the first time, it's the first book I've written. And so that was another kind of neat thing is like, I had to learn how to not legal write, but write right for people in a book. But anywho, um, so it's in, it's in, it's on Amazon. Uh, and, um, you can also get it, um, um, from Barnes and Noble So It's in there now. Um, so sister siren, a nonfiction about addiction and a field guide on how to love an addict. I have a website that links to all those as well. And that is, uh, mkcanterbury.com. My email is author at mkcanterbury.com for my, my author stuff. Um, because I, 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 I gathered all the tips and the tools. I even have in this book, I have, so I have the intervention letters that we wrote. I have um, in the book, uh, a glossary of terms because I didn't know what these words were in these terms. I always thought DOC was Department of Corrections, but it's actually drug of choice in that world. <laughs> so anyway, there's a glossary of terms um, in the back and all my letters to my sister that that remember that pseudo conservative agreement I talked about that's in here too. Um, my MWBT practice, my morning well-being time practice, and how to deal with RFFs, red flag feelings. That's all in here too. Uh, and then the, the the stories. My sister wrote the prologue, and my dad wrote the epilogue. So uh, it's kind of great how things come full circle because my sister and I are now able to step in to uh, caring for our aging parents. Like I mentioned earlier, my mother has Alzheimer's and our dad had a stroke earlier this year in February. And so he's had some brain trauma. And so we're able to step in and care for our, our parents together. Again, recognizing each other's limits and what we can bring to the table and how we can work this together and, and care for our, care for our parents. Anyway, so folks can email me at author at mkcanterbury.com. They can go to my website mkcanterbury.com um they can get the book on amazon or barnes and noble and there we go awesome and as i always say 
if you pick up this book, especially if you're picking it up at an online retailer, leave a good review because even though this book hit number one, like it could always use more reviews because that gets it more spotlight time, you know, and then other people get to find it and they can find help for their loved ones. Yes. Thank you for that, Colton. And also now that we're entering into the holiday season, um, if, if you, I mean, this is, um, my sister's read the book, of course she wrote the prologue, but I have people saying it's good for people who are in addiction. It's good for people who love, um, love addicts. And so to get it not only for your own self, but as a gift, if you have a friend that it, that loves an addict, this is what helped me. And so I would, I just want it to help others. So yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for coming on the show. I've appreciated it immensely. Thank you for having me and giving me the space to like share the message and share the stories. Thank you so very much. Do you feel more informed having listened to this episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast? If so, please take a brief moment to rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or Audible. If you really liked it, remember to subscribe for more episodes every week and check out the nearly 100-episode backlog. Let me know what you'd like to hear by reaching out and emailing me, dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com, or send a message on any of the show pages on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever else. I'm always looking for new topics, guest ideas, and questions from the audience. Here's the December ranking so far. Number one, the United States, with New York, Oregon, and California as the top states. Number two, the United Kingdom making that comeback over number three, Australia, who is now led by Victoria. Number four, New Zealand, good to see you back up in the top. And number five, Canada, with Ontario holding the top province spot. That's it for today. I will see you all Thursday, the 15th, as we take our eating experiences on the road. Bye bye